I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. Safety nets that are made available to farmers, you know, to deal with unexpected climate issues, are part of our policy in the United States. Mm-hmm. But it also, because of the global effect of these shifting climate patterns, so it seems, it's also an international policy issue. And I find all of this actually quite puzzling. I, even if we take a look at that last and the most recent election, the reference to policies around climate, around agriculture, around trade, was something that was part of the campaigning. Mm-hmm. You know, things like words and, and acronyms like NAFTA mm-hmm. came up all the time and the fair trade and trans-Pacific and transatlantic and partnership. All of these kinds of words played a big role, not only during the campaigning most recently, but over the last year. And I'll tell you, as a farmer and as a consumer of good food, some of this is really hard to understand. Mm. I don't know. Have you got it all nailed down there, Dave Corbett? (laughs) I mean, you've been farming a heck of a lot longer than I have. And certainly you were in the dairy world that was heavily regulated. Mm -hmm. And you saw amazing ups and downs. Right. Now, do you know whether or not those ups and downs were because of international policy? I'm sure some of them were. I have always tried to uh, take the tact that... uh, um, I'm going to be concerned with my bottom line and try and work around the government because that's usually what you wind up doing. Well, you know, that's an interesting, <laughs> that's an interesting approach. Uh, one of the things I do is I, when I go into the Twin Cities, uh, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area quite often in order to make beef deliveries. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I do is I, is I use those trips as an opportunity to go into numbers of retail outlets. So I'll go into some of the larger fancier grocery mm-hmm. stores, I'll go into the food co-ops, I'll go into the, the growing number of Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, mm-hmm. and I'll take a look at the meat counters mm-hmm. and look at the prices and determine or, or at least try to observe what the current prices are. Right. And one of the things I notice is that there's a whole lot of international meat sitting there. Oh, yeah. And so even though I grow my cattle uh, and manage my cattle here in the upper Midwest in Wisconsin. At my local store, you know, and we're talking about a, a market that's under 100 miles from me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I am competing internationally. Right. With meats from Australia, commonly, mm-hmm. and also from Brazil. Really? Yeah. And mm. because some of the labeling um, that we had available to us just even a short while ago called country of origin labeling right. where people could tell where some of their food came from, that law was lifted. Mm-hmm. So people may not know that they are 
getting meats from certain places unless they look at the really, 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 really fine print. <laughs> you got to bring your magnifying glass along. You know, so it, so even a local farmer is highly affected mm -hmm. by international trade. Still, all of this is confusing. I don't know sometimes how it gets into place. However, this morning we have with us someone who is much more familiar with this whole notion of trade and agricultural policy on an international level. And that is Josh Weiss, who is the Director of Development and Communications with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Good morning, Josh. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm, I'm doing well. Tell us a little bit about IATP. Exactly what does it do? Well, IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, was founded during the farm crisis of the 80s. Um, because what we were finding is, like you said, um, a lot of the reasons for the low prices uh, that farmers were getting were being set outside of the United States. You know, whether it was the then the general agreement on trade and tariffs, um, or you know, other other policy-making bodies, um, farmers were being affected, and so IATP was set up to monitor that to advocate on behalf of family farmers um, at those bodies and ultimately try to create agreements that uh, allowed farmers to stay on the land and get a fair price for what they were producing. One of the things that's kind of interesting is that this uh, institute has a, an international interest in scope. Um, it is headquartered in Minneapolis, am I correct? Yes, yep. But you've got offices in both Washington, <clears throat> D.C. and Berlin. Mm -hmm. So certainly right. a vantage points that, that serve us all uh, across the up, not only the upper Midwest, but all across the United States. What is your job exactly at IATP? Well, <laughs> um, you know, ultimately I'm in charge of raising the money. That's the first thing, and it, it, it takes money to do the work. But also, um, you know, what we've found um, over the last 30 years is that we know a lot of the reasons that farmers uh, are getting low prices. And, you know, right now for a lot of different commodity crops, the price is below the cost of production. Um, we know the reason for that. We know, you know, as you talked about with, uh, with climate change, we know that greenhouse gas emissions are causing climate change and that human action, including actions that, you know, could be avoided in agriculture, are contributing to that. Um, but right now it's a question of getting public opinion and getting, you know, frankly, political will in place where we can actually enact the policies that are going to be good for farmers and rural communities. Um, and so that, you know, that's essentially what I see as my job as um, the director of communications is taking the 30 years of research that we and our partners have done and, um, you know, putting it into the hands of the public and saying, hey, here's what you can actually do about this. Um, to affect change. You know, I, uh, when I when I hear the news about these large international trade, some of, the, some of them are agreements in place, but others are, are mm -hmm. always under dispute. Here I am, you know, sitting in Polk County, Wisconsin, and I think to myself, man, I am just a small family farm. Mm -hmm. I don't amount to a hill of beans. How, how much can I do about regulations that that span the globe and are made in you know in in hollowed halls in Washington DC or elsewhere 
you know, you can always be in contact with your elected officials as an individual. You can, you know, obviously engage in um, consumer and, and, and sustainable producer practices that are good. But also, you know, there is definitely power in numbers. And it's not just you. It's the millions of people, you know, farmers and, and good food advocates uh, around the country um, all acting as one that um, end up really affecting change. And I think the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which the U.S. withdrew from last year, is a good example of that. You know, the, in, you often hear in the media that Donald Trump was responsible for killing the TPP. But the reality is um, that was the result of thousands of groups operating over about six years uh, to build uh, political opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And the reality is that agreement um, could easily have come up for a vote before the election, and it could have come up for a vote um, before Donald Trump took office. But they didn't have the votes. And the reason they didn't have the votes is because people like you up in northwest Wisconsin were organizing. Mm. All right. So let's let's step back a little bit before we kind of think Mm -hmm. about how each one of us can take action. When we take a look at these large policies, and you talked about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, mm-hmm. what, how is it that those kinds of policies, how does that affect farming? And, and my second question is, then how does it affect what lands on my plate? That's a very big question, and you can feel the effects in a variety of ways. But I'll, I'll, let's talk about um, farm prices. So... NAFTA was the first. Uh, NAFTA, which is under renegotiation now, has kind of been the blueprint for trade policy over the last 20 years. Like every free trade agreement that's been negotiated has basically followed the model of NAFTA. One of the things that NAFTA aimed to do was to uh, limit the amount of supply management that could take place in any given country. So basically, what that means is that. You know, I, I'm, I would imagine so many of your listeners are familiar with supply management, but basically what it means is that we're going to limit the supply that's available on the market of agricultural goods so that the price stays at, you know, sort of a fair price for goods um, so that farmers can afford to stay on their land and maintain their operations. Um, NAFTA did away with that, and, and the rhetoric being, well, if farmers just produce as much as possible, then we can export our way to prosperity. Um, what we saw that in succession was that NAFTA in 1994, the dawn of the World Trade Organization in 1995, and then the 1996 Farm Bill, uh, which dismantled supply management, basically sent prices immediately in the tank um, shortly after. And, and um, you know, uh, farmers really have yet to recover from that. Um, and and I, I will say that it um, wasn't just in the United States where it had an effect. Um, Part of the result of exporting, um, you know, corn, for example, uh, into Mexico was that it displaced Mexican farmers. Um, we had testified in Congress in, in the early 90s that we thought it would displace about 500,000 Mexican farmers. Um, the reality is that it, the number is closer to 3 million at this point. Okay. Um, Josh, can I, can I stop you for just a second? Yeah. Because I think sometimes um, people may be like me. Uh, who have such rudimentary understanding of policy that they may not even understand what NAFTA initially was. So NAFTA stands for North American Free Trade Agreement, right? And yep. uh, you you correct me here if I'm wrong. And it involved the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Correct. And what it was supposed to do, 
was to promote free trade amongst those three countries by it was it removing or maybe just shaping some of the tariff uh, kind of obstacles amongst well, them? Well, that's a <laughs> that's another really good question because um, there's a, a very wide gap between what a free trade economist will tell you that free trade is mm. and what an agreement like the North American Free Trade Agreement actually does. Um, so ultimately what free trade means is that you should be able to move goods across borders without taxes, right? There should be no tariffs. Mm. Um, and a tariff is basically a tax on a good that's crossing a border. Um, uh, and it, it just, you know, on, on background <laughs> there, it's, it's actually how the U.S. used to fund most of the federal government before we had an income tax was through tariffs ah. on, on imports. Um, but so that's, that's the basic framework for free trade. Um, and there are pluses and minuses to that. What NAFTA did is it targeted what's called non-tariff barriers to trade. Now, that sounds really technical, um, but in reality, what it means is any law, be it federal, state, local, that impedes a business's ability to do business. Mm. Um, and so in NAFTA, they targeted everything from telecommunications to environmental regulations, to consumer product uh, you know, uh, food safety, for example. And they said, okay, how can we lower all the barriers so that we're operating off the same minimum standard across borders? And so what we found is that, you know, NAFTA being the blueprint for agreements is that as trade agreements have gotten, have evolved and gotten more complex, that they really are this international way of overriding our uh, federal, state, and local decision-making authority, be it on regulations on safety or on the ability, for example, to keep uh, farm prices at a fair standard. If these big trade agreements seem to be like a tsunami on local capability because you no longer have any kind of local control, mm -hmm. it's, it's no wonder that people feel overwhelmed Yeah. when they True. start probing these various kinds of mammoth um, policies that are happening. And so who do these policies tend to favor then? They favor the people who get to make them. So the, uh, uh, a little bit of uh, more background on that. So the, the trade policy is, is led by the United States Trade Representative. And um, they're part of what's called the Executive Office of the President. As a diplomat, there are all sorts of privileges that go on with that, one of which is the ability to uh, keep negotiations with other countries classified. And uh, that's what the USTR does when they're doing trade negotiations. So we don't actually get to see what's going to be in a free trade agreement until it's already been agreed. No now, kidding. Yeah, and it, it gets worse than that. <laughs> um, uh, so in addition to that, uh, the trade representative has what's what are called advisory committees, which are ostensibly, you know, they're committees of experts who advise on the agreements. Now, if you look at who's actually on those committees, uh, about 90% of, of the people on the committees are from multinational corporations. You know, these are the, the Cargills, the Monsantos, the ADMs of the world oh, who are it, uh, writing the agricultural policy, basically. Interesting um, who's in the room then, huh? Yep. So when we look at who the agreements benefit, it's no surprise <laughs> that they benefit the people who were in the room. 
there isn't really a representative of the smaller scale family farm that's that's uh, kind of helping to shape this. Is that correct? Not on the scale of the of of, of the corporate agribusiness um, and corporations in general. Under the Trump administration, they've just foregone any attempt to at least put on the facade of having balance on these committees. Mm. Um, they just don't care. Um, under the Obama administration with, you know, TPP, for example, and the transatlantic agreement, um, you know, they, they kept telling us, oh, well, we've got representatives from small farms and labor and the environment uh, on these committees, and we're, you know, we're involving people in the process. But the reality was, you know, again, we, we made up about 10% of all of the advisors. And uh, a lot of the times when they would do what's called stakeholder engagement, uh, they would do a lot of listening to what we had to say, but then they wouldn't tell us anything that they were doing. So we didn't have an opportunity to comment on what was actually going on. We just sort of had to guess. Um, And I should say the same is actually true for members of Congress. If you're a member of Congress, you have a bit more access, but in order to actually see what's in the text, you have to uh, give up your cell phone, take no notes, uh, get patted down by security guards, uh, and go into a room where you can uh, read the paper copies of the negotiating text. Hmm. Um, but then you can't tell anyone what was in it, and you just sort of have to kind of comment uh, very mysteriously to the other stakeholders when you when after you've seen what's in there. Josh, it strikes me that that the, the scene that you just described, I've seen it on television. Um, in these various kinds of, of uh, political and espionage kind of programs, um, and obviously it's it's true. I'm not I'm not assigning mm-hmm. it any kind of sinister motive. I'm just saying that that kind of confidentiality is is very closely protected as these things are developed. You right. know, Josh, you've done a great job of of describing in a very short period of time the complexity of all of this. And, and the, the kind of, of attention and time it takes to affect these large policies. How does it end up, and, and because I, I ask this now because we only have a few minutes left, and sure. I hope to be able to talk to you again about this, but how does that end up affecting me? Okay, so let, take, take me and, and uh, Dave Corbett here as an example. We raise 100% grass-fed beef, all right? Mm-hmm. We sell, Dave takes one model of, of distribution and I take another. He sells into the commodity market and I sell uh, into direct sales. How does this, how does what's currently in place affect us? Talking about your distribution is, is, is a really good uh, starting point. Whether it's an international export market or your local farmer's market, farmers need markets to sell their goods to. And what we've seen because of these policies is uh, a huge concentration in corporate power. And what that means is that they have much more leverage when they're setting the market price in commodities. And I would say, you know, if you're doing direct sales, that's great. But one of, you know, one of the reasons um, that they've been able to amass so much power is because by putting downward pressure on the price they're giving farmers, they're also putting downward pressure on the price that, you see at the store, for mm-hmm. example. You know, if you're if you're importing Chinese pork from a, you know, confined animal feeding operation, um, 
and and it ends up at you know your local cub store for you know 2.99 a pound or whatever it is right now you know even if you're doing direct sales and you've got that alternative market that's who you're competing with and it's really hard when you can't you know i mean i don't think it would be pretty impossible for a sustainably raised cow to compete at you know two or 3.99 a pound uh for ground beef. It's not going to happen. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it, and that's because of the corporate concentration. And now, you know, one might want to say, well, yeah, but that's just the market. Um uh and if they can sell it at 2.99 a pound, that's good for them. That's efficiency. But what I would also say is, well, what went into that meat? Uh you don't know where it came from because they repealed country of origin labeling. Uh, the, the the food safety standards for food coming into the United States, I mean, USDA inspects about 1% of import, all food imports coming into the U.S. And um, what we, you know, what we heard with the, uh, the government shutdown, for example, is that FDA just stopped inspecting. So uh, the quality of that product is, is pretty darn low, and, and that's what you're forced to compete with. Yes, it, it's become really apparent, too, in the last six months, as I've seen some of the beef prices drop. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that some of the ground beef prices have just dropped precipitously. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. that's what I'm competing against, even with yep. the 100% grass-fed uh, within that sector. And it's like, holy mm-hmm. macaroni. And it's not, and I, initially I thought, maybe this is just economies of scale. You know, I'm mm-hmm. tiny they're huge and that's why they can do this but i had not really taken into account that whole overlay of international policy Mm -hmm. that allows so much of this to happen and to continue happening really on a feverish scale and 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 i will say there's you know not only um do they are they able to kind of make it hard um to uh, or to deregulate themselves kind of at the international level, but they put a chilling effect on enacting new regulations and new programs. You know, I, I think grass-fed is actually a good example where, I, I mean, you say 100% grass-fed and that's good, but then you see a lot of labels that just say grass-fed, right. which means that, you know, you know, the cow got imported from Mexico and was fed grass, some grass at the finishing, and then they get to slap the grass-fed label on it. You know, and it's uh, the fact that they're able to uh, have so much concentration in the market and so much power um, that they've achieved through the international agreements that make it really hard to fight against that kind of stuff. Can you give us um, your website so that people can begin to delve into some of the really good uh, material that's there? The, the website is www.iatp.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for IATP. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.